All right, Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 25 is what we'll look at. <clears throat> and today, what will uh, take our attention is looking at, at Jesus as prophet. Uh, there are, it's said that he, he has three offices. It's a weird word to use, but theologians have used that for a long time. That he is a prophet he is the he is the role of king, priest and the role of king, and so we'll take the next three weeks and look at prophet, priest, and king as we think about Jesus and really the the weariness that we experience in our lives uh, is to be answered only with Jesus. Even though we might want to be distracted with other things, uh, Jesus needs to be our focus. Here, God's word records the birth of Jesus in this way. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would give us a fresh awareness and fresh faith for some familiar stories that we have grown up with. And Father, I ask for a, a renewed joy that we really would be able to come to a place of rejoicing and seeing Jesus' birth as the reason for rejoicing, understanding what his life would be, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So Lord, uh, give us fresh eyes for familiar things. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are all in touch with weariness. So how does Jesus' birth cause us to rejoice within our weariness? There's the, the bigger question is this, is 2020 anything to rejoice in? Now, some, some have welcomed babies this year. Some have gotten married this year. So there, there are little pockets of joy, but overall, a lot of us are looking just for uh, a calendar to change and we, a calendar year to change. Uh, we might, I think January 1, 2, 3 is going to feel like more like Groundhog Day 2020. It's going to be the same thing. It's, it's going to feel the same way. So what, what does God have to say about speaking into our weariness that lifts our gaze to something outside of ourselves? Because our greatest need is not to figure out more of who we are. Our greatest need is to recognize who God is and understand how he has changed us and transformed us into the image of his son. So there is a, a transcending. And think about it this way. Jesus condescended. He came down to us. We sang it a little while ago. To raise us up with him. 
And not just raise us so we can have a better life today, but raise us up so we can recognize how we are seated with him in heavenly places. And he is the focus of our attention. He is the focus of our minds and our emotions. And remember, our, our world falling apart uh, does not come as a surprise to the people of God. We, we know and understand that sin and brokenness in our world results in calamity and heartache, heartbreak, and pandemics. We really should be wondering why it doesn't happen more. So this doesn't take us as a surprise, uh, take us by surprise, but the, what's happening in the world today does not take God by surprise. God's not trying to figure out a different way to go about interacting with his people, interacting with the world, because all of a sudden, oh, a pandemic. God's not surprised by that. It, and he's not, a, a pandemic is not more powerful than he is. It's not wiser than he is. See, so walking around, was it turned off? No? All right. He's just pointing something. And, you know, if you were trying to mute me or turn me off, Mark. <laughs> right. <laughs> but look, church, for us, uh, Emmanuel, God with us, is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's a wonderful truth because we don't deserve it. Now, we live in a culture that talks a lot about what we deserve and how our rights need to be protected. And when we, when we act as if, uh, and it's very easy to do this, when we act like we deserve things, we attribute our relationship to God by, uh, as if we have a bill of rights with God. And atop of that bill of rights is happiness. God, I have happiness as a right and you need to give it to me. Because that's, that's how this is supposed to work, right God? So we can look at Jesus coming to the earth as, oh, that, that's a fulfillment to just make my life easier or make my life more comfortable or, or just make sure I can get by. Because he's, I got my bill of rights and it, it's happiness and financial security and comfort, ease. And we, we ask God for these things and we make it a subject of our relationship with him. But we do not have rights to be protected in our relationship with God. God giving us his son is a miracle. And it's a wonder of wonders. And, and as we look at the birth of Christ, we often don't connect the fulfillment of Jesus as a prophet, his role as a prophet that was fulfilled at his birth. Now, he, he grew into a prophetic role with his life. And we'll look at that a little bit, just what a prophet means and how Jesus fulfilled that. But listen, Moses spoke of Jesus. Moses spoke of him. Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, 
that was also there. It's a foreshadowing of how God will raise up other prophets. But it's ultimately Jesus that's the prophet of all prophets that, that Moses was talking about, that God told Moses. Peter makes that connection in Acts chapter 3. On the day of Pentecost, when he gives the big sermon, he says, Moses spoke of this. This is what's happening. Jesus, this is, this is who Moses was looking for. This is who Moses was describing. So this is a big deal. Jesus as prophet. But let's look at this real quick. What's the role of a prophet? Two things, a mouthpiece and a mediator. A prophet was a mouthpiece in terms of here, when God tells Moses, I'll give him my words and he'll speak what I command him. We typically think of prophets as fortune tellers in terms of future telling. Here's what's going to happen in the future. But that was really a slim part of their job. What was more a part of a prophet's job was forthtelling. Here's what's God, here is what, here's what's God saying right now. Here is what God is saying to us right now. In a right now moment. That's why we, we do believe the gift of prophecy still exists for the New Testament church in order for us to, to pursue an understanding of, God, what are you saying to us right now? Now, we don't, we don't think the, the role and the gift of prophecy is equal with, all right, whatever I think God is saying right now, I'm going to write it down, put it in the back of my, my Bible so it's God's word right there. No, it's not that type of gift. This gift, and there, there have been... I've seen the gift of prophecy in my own lifetime work in terms of somebody uh, prophesying a future event that was coming. It's pretty weird. It was very rare. But what the gift of prophecy that builds up the church is one that, that says what God is doing right now. What is God saying to us right now? And it's a, it's a wonderful feeling when we understand and, and we connect with somebody who's got that gift and they, maybe it's just a... I have this impression or this, I have this, this desire that God wants to say this to you. These are, those are encouraging words. They're comforting words. They give us security in our moment. But ultimately, they show us that God's thinking about us. We're on his radar. He's not so busy off in another part of the universe that he doesn't have time to communicate his love to us. No, it shows us he's still thinking about us. And he's still pointing us to his son because that was the role of the prophets. The prophets carried uh, three aspects of a message. They carried messages of indictment because of sin. They were telling God's people, you've sinned and you've turned your back on God. You're rebellious. And they have some strong words. The past couple months I've been reading through the, the big major prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. I'm in, his, in the back half of Ezekiel right now. They got some bold things to say to the people. And shocking things when you read them. And it's God telling them, this is what God is saying, thus says the Lord. And this is, this is how he's describing their efforts at trying to figure out another avenue to, to find their happiness and joy and peace through secondary idolatrous cravings rather than going to God himself that's standing there with open arms saying, just come to me, trust me. And through your trust, there will be obedience and there'll be a blessing that comes. So the prophets come with an indictment because of sin. But they also have a plea for repentance. And God's giving them that plea. Because God is telling his people over and over and over again, repent of your sin. 
repent of all the ways that you invent a distraction in your life that takes you away from your devotion to me. And he's saying to them, I love you. Come back to me. Come back to me. And the third aspect of the message was this. Forgiveness of sin. For you come to me, your sin will be forgiven. It's Isaiah 53. We find out the suffering servant is the one that takes all of that sin so they can be blotted out. These were amazing messages that were given, and Jesus' birth announces all three of those aspects of that message. Jesus' birth shows that there is an indictment because of sin. If there was no sin, he wouldn't have to come to bear our sin on the cross. But by his very birth, he's showing there's a problem, and that problem needs to be addressed. And he's saying, I'm here to address it, but what he's also saying is, other direction. Jesus said repent. So he fulfills that prophetic role, but he's with his even his birth, he's announcing that there's a need for repentance, but glory of glories, there is forgiveness for those who repent. And we celebrate these at his birth. Jesus did all three, he fulfilled all three components. Now Jesus isn't just the mouthpiece for God. He is God. So he is that Word of God. He's the Word of God. We find that in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Apostle John recognizes this is the Word. He just doesn't have the words of God. He is the embodiment of that Word, and that Word is alive, and that Word comes to God's people, God with us. Hebrews 1 1 to 3, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, he's also, he, whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, we think that God has a powerful word but it's the word of his power. Jesus represents the power of God. Now we have all, I'm not supposed to use superlatives, all, always. Uh, most every one of us has held a little baby. And if you've held your own child, you don't really have the caption of power, do you? No, it's frail, tender. You see new dads and they're stiff. Am I going to break it? Can't move? They're stuck in a position. You don't, there's, there's a, a, a fragility about that moment and there's a tenderness and a care. But Mary holds the most powerful essence ever. She cuddles that baby that she gave birth to. And amazing. Jesus is the word of God's power. And in many ways, he is the last word of God. In terms of salvation, he's the last word. 
We don't have to look anymore. We don't have to wait for another word on salvation from God. Jesus is the last word. God says he's the one that saves. It's the last word. He finished speaking about salvation with the birth of Jesus. He still speaks. God still speaks to us, but what is he doing to us? He's calling us back to look to Jesus over and over and over again. Prophets are mouthpieces for God. They also are mediators. Mediators, a prophet, the role of a prophet in the Old Testament was to speak to God on man's behalf. Uh, In Deuteronomy 18, Moses was reminding the people, they all came to talk to God at Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, at Mount Sinai. They come to him and they are looking and they are terrified. And they said, Moses, we don't want to be around that anymore. How about you just go speak for us? They asked Moses to be their mediator. You stand in between God and us because it's not safe. We're going to get annihilated if we get too close. So Moses was that mediator and Moses is prophesying, saying there's going to come another one. He will be the mediator. He will be the one to be between you and God. And and the prophets served a bit of that role through the years as God sent the prophets to his people. He was saying, here, they're going to speak to God on behalf of the people and they are going to speak to the people on behalf of God. The in-between. Isaiah 43. God has something to say about the prophets. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. See, the prophets didn't serve their role by faith. They served themselves selfishly and God was against them. But we have an ultimate mediator and that is Jesus himself. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What a thrilling verse. Many of us grew up in formalized religious structures where we were taught that we had to go around Jesus to try to get to God because Jesus was too holy or maybe we were too unworthy. So we needed to go a secondary route to pray to somebody else that we thought may have been close enough to God to be able to get our prayers to God. Even praying to Mary. Mary, you're, you're closest to him, so will you relay this? That's making Mary a mediator. And that's not who we have. We have open to us, Jesus is that mediator. And he's not waiting for us to give a little prayer to take to the Father. You know what he's doing as the mediator? He's praying for us. He's praying in ways that we don't even know how to ask to pray. And he's asking God to remind us over and over and over again of who we are in him. That we don't have to go any other route. You know, the straight line, uh, closest distance between two points is a straight line. Jesus provides that straight line for us. And within this, when his role is priest, there's another aspect of how we are then priests with him. So we get to go to the Father with our own prayers. And we don't have to wait. We don't have to uh, get somebody else to help us. We get to go directly to the Father by Jesus himself. 
Hebrews 9, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Hebrews is telling everybody Jesus is the best prophet, he's the best priest, and he's the best king. Do you look through the, the writings of, of the book of Hebrews? That's what the writer is doing. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than David. He's greater than everybody because he's Jesus. He's God, the radiance of the glory of God. And he's the mediator of a new covenant. And we know from the prophets that that covenant is everlasting. It's not conditional based on how good we are for him. The covenant is everlasting where he says to us, he promises, Jeremiah 31, he promises to never stop doing good to us. Amazing. Nowhere in there says, he promises to never stop doing good to you as long as you're doing good to him. There's a period at the end of that statement. He promises to never stop doing good to us, period. And we have to remind ourselves all the time, because we want to sneak in our own efforts. We want to sneak in our own character. We want to sneak in something in God's work. Like, certainly it can't be that simple. It is. And many men and women have stumbled over the simplicity of the gospel. I said before that the gospel is shallow enough for a child to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to sink in. It's the gospel. We don't get past it. And we are to wonder, and so God with us is the wonder of all wonders. This is why every religious system outside of biblical Christianity that we have from Scripture, every religious system and every thought process and every belief structure is about man's quest to get something eternal. Now, whatever we call that eternal, whether it's a God thing, whether it's a, a mental peace, whether it's something that we're going after, every religious system is about what we do to get to God. And God is telling everybody with the birth of Christ, you don't have to do anything to get me because I'm coming to you. Isn't that amazing? In the teaching of Islam, Allah would never, ever, ever stoop to do something like that. He would never bend his knee, ever. And here God, Jesus, puts everything on hold and comes to the earth very, to be dependent on the very creation that he sustains by the word of his power. Isn't that amazing? That's what the baby in the manger is showing. So it's representing. His plan all along was to come to us. We have that as early as Genesis chapter 3 with the seed of the woman. His, his plan has always been, I'm going to come to you. You're going to be tempted to come to me and you're going to try to change the narrative, but here is what's happening. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to fulfill for you everything that you desire because I'm your greatest need. Our greatest need in this year is not to have the calendar flip. Our greatest need in this year is not to have a stimulus check. Our greatest need this year is not something that will make us feel better or, or just not, be, not to wear masks anymore. That's not our greatest need. Our greatest need every day of our lives is to see Jesus and be enveloped in His glory and see the glory that He is and be transformed into that glory because that's His plan for us. 
He came to us to make him, make us like him. And we want to take Jesus and make him like us. But that's not what his plan is. He changes us and he transforms us from one degree of glory to the next. How does he do that? When we look at him, when we stare in his face. And one day, one day, glory of all glories, we will see him as he is. We'll see his face. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Revelation 22, 4. We will see his face. No more distraction by our own sin, clouding our, our spiritual sight. No more struggle in, this, in the spiritual realm. Nothing. All of it gone. We don't even need faith in that day. Faith will be gone because we will see Jesus' face. So what's God's word in our cultural moment? I think God's word comes, this is not exhaustive, but this is what I believe for us to be thinking through and also to be to be meditating on uh, with, the, uh, with a focused prayer for the opportunity that we can share it with somebody else who's struggling in the weariness of this year. God's word in every cultural moment is that there's good news and bad news. And if somebody says, give me the good news first, give them the bad news first. That's what God gives us. He gives us the bad news first, and the prophets gave the bad news. Way early in the prophets, Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 1 is about God calling Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2, verse 13, y'all have forsaken God. You don't get the restoration passages until the 30s in Jeremiah. God's serious about letting us know you're in a bad situation in your sin. And our world where we, we want to be a shining light of rescue for the misery that the world experiences. But one of the most loving things we can do in a loving way is tell people that their greatest need is not the comfort that they're seeking or the freedom, the desire. Their greatest need is in the heart. Just like when uh, the four friends took their paralytic friend and they made a hole in the roof where Jesus was teaching in the house, and they lowered him in front of Jesus, Jesus didn't say, be healed. He said, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because that was his greatest need. His greatest need wasn't to be freed from his paralysis. So our greatest need is not to be freed from the paralysis of 2020. Our greatest need is to be united with our Savior, experiencing his forgiveness every day. That's what he wants for us. So there's good news, bad news. Give the bad news. We are disconnected from God because of our sins. Isaiah 59 says there's a chasm between us and God because of our sins. And God does not hear our prayers. He doesn't respond to us because of that sin. He does respond to this one. I repent of being God. Forgive me, God. I, I want you. I trust you. Because there is the good news. There is forgiveness for those who repent. There is forgiveness for those who place their faith in Christ. Now God's word in our cultural moment for us as believers and also in a world, a hurting, lost and dying world, there's comfort in the uncertainty. The people of God have a truth and the presence of the Spirit inside of us we have a mechanism that keeps us going. 
that doesn't show up in a bank account. It doesn't show up maybe in a pantry. It doesn't show up in the, the, the work that we seek or perform. We have a, a comfort that shows up when we say, God, trust you. And the Isaiah 43, wonderful. 40 to 43, great homework assignment. Comfort my people is what he tells Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people. God wants to comfort his people. And that promise is still for us. So I ask you, dear friends, what is taking your gaze off of the comfort that we have in Christ and how are you trying to find comfort in something else, something that's secondary or trying to, to run after an idolatrous craving that's not satisfying anything? God wants to comfort us in our uncertainty. There's a lot of it. But He is our comfort, and that's what, that's what the culture should be hearing from us and seeing in us, a, a faith level that causes us to walk by peace and comfort knowing that God is completely in control because this is not undone His sovereignty. So there is a surety of His sovereignty. Undoubtedly, God is using this time, I think, in two ways. I think He's been doing this all year with the, the struggle that we've had amidst the pandemic. I think He's drawing the loss by them recognizing that they don't have anything. And when... When circumstances come in to take away, whether it's health or, or financial, when circumstances come in and take away what they were secure in, it exposes a false security on purpose. God uses that to draw people to himself. But you know, I think that's, that's unbelievers. But I think what God is doing to the believers is he's messing with comfort. Because I think as believers, we've gotten too comfortable. And so rather than say, I'm so uncomfortable, I want this comfort back, we need to be asking the Lord, how do I need to live differently as a result of this? How do I need to leave, live differently uh, in, in terms of not putting comfort at my, my highest level of Bill of Rights in my relationship with God? He's, he's disturbing us. Jesus disturbs us. It's the prophetic aspect of who he is. Because he will not let us settle for any lesser faith. In Ezekiel 36, over and over again, God says this. For my name's sake, I do this. So he's doing something, drawing unbelievers to himself. But he's also doing something in the lives of believers. For his name's sake. So if our lives do not reflect his name enough, He'll disturb us enough. He'll get us uncomfortable. So we start looking to him and saying, God, what's going on? He says, now I've got your attention. Let's work. Let me show you who I am. Let's bring that healing. Let's bring that, that deep work in our souls that causes us to have a lifted head as we walk through uncertainty. Because God is sure about his sovereignty. We also need to be sure about his sovereignty. So what does this mean for us today? I think our conclusion is this. As we think about Jesus as prophet and, and beginning the Advent season now, I think we rejoice in our weariness. Because a weary world can only rejoice when they see the people of God rejoicing 
amidst the uncertainty. Because we have a surety about our relationship with God. We have a surety about our, our security uh, in Christ and his work for us and now our position before God with him. It's sure and it's founded. But if God's, God's wrestling, uh, wrestling something up, it's disturbing us a little bit, don't waste that. Please don't waste that. He's, he's going after our attention. He's going after our hearts because he wants us to trust him with everything. But Because even in that, we can rejoice and not let weariness overcome. Please do not use this Christmas season as a distraction from a misery. We need to go to our Savior to experience Emmanuel, God with us. Father, we ask that you would Again, as we prayed in the beginning, in the outset of our time, we want to see the birth of Christ for the enormity of what it is and what it was, what it represents as we, as we call to mind the glory that is on display with a baby in a manger, in a feeding trough. As we, we celebrate communion and we come to that trough and when Jesus says, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's pointing to the new covenant that we celebrate, and it started at that moment. Jesus was in that feeding trough, in that manger. And I pray, Lord, that you, as, as you capture our attention, you would give us faith to trust you more and more and more so our lives really look different, our light can shine in the midst of uh, whatever circumstance, uh, in the situations of our lives.